Okay. Anybody know what that was? That was the song Illinois Loyalty from the University of Illinois. Go Illini. They are in a bowl game tomorrow, and I promise there's more to the story as to why I played that other than just bragging on my football team. Um, but you probably don't know that that song, Illinois Loyalty, is the very first university school song in, like, ever. Like, so thank you, or you're welcome for these fight songs that you guys love, you Aggies or Longhorns or Red Raiders or wherever else you're from. You have the University of Illinois to thank for your fight songs because we started that tradition. So that song, Illinois Loyalty, the lyrics begin, we're loyal to you, Illinois. And sports teams gain our loyalty, right? For example, some of you this afternoon will probably turn on the TV to watch the Cowboys play, right? And they haven't had a great season so far, but they're not out of the playoffs just yet. But you're loyal to them. So you're probably going to be disappointed by their performance this afternoon. But does that mean you're going to root for the Eagles? Are you guys going to become Eagles fans instead? No, because the Cowboys have your loyalty. Even though they haven't been very good, you will be loyal to them for the rest of your life. It will be a sad, miserable rest of your life, but you will still be loyal to the Cowboys. So this idea of loyalty is one that we find throughout Scripture. This idea of loyalty to God and to God's people. And the prophet Isaiah was especially fierce about this idea. So the book of Isaiah, one of our biggest books of the Bible, it inhabits a very interesting place in the story of God's people. Isaiah himself was writing at a time during the kingdom of Judah. Um, during this, this kingdom that was David's sons and their sons ruling over the people of Judah. And he was prophesying about the fall of that kingdom and of banishment into exile for God's people. And then beyond that, an eventual return from exile back into God's promised land. So from where Isaiah is standing, he's standing in the kingdom of Judah, he is seeing the story of God's people as one that has always been of rebellion and disobedience and disloyalty to the God who chose them out of all of the nations to bless. Israel has abandoned the covenants that God made to their ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Moses, to David. They have abandoned those covenants. They've been disloyal to God. And so we step into Isaiah 63, as Sandra read for us. Uh, we are near the end of the prophecy of Isaiah. And it, it's a prophecy that simultaneously looks back on what God has done and also looks forward to what he will continue to do for his people. So Isaiah 63, 8 begins with some astonishing news. God said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. After all that God's people have done, they have worshipped other gods, they have done all sorts of crazy sinning, like they have done all sorts of stuff to be disloyal to God. And after all of that, God still calls them his children. Which leads us to a very, very, very important point this morning, 
about our relationship with God. Before God is our God, we are his children. That's the order of this. And beyond that, God wants his children to be true to him, to be loyal and faithful to their father. As many of you are loyal and faithful to the Dallas Cowboys, God wants us to be loyal and faithful to him. And it's always been true that we are God's before he is ours. Because of all the people on earth, God chose Abraham to bless. And before Abraham's son and grandson were born, God chose Isaac and Jacob to continue that line of blessing. In the Exodus, God went to the wilderness to select a stammering murderer to be his mouthpiece before Pharaoh. And when Saul, the king, was unfaithful to God, God sought out a new king, King David. So despite all of the evil, all of the idolatry that God's people have done, he still calls them his children. God lays a claim on us before anything we do is taken into account. And that brings us to one of the most undervalued truths in all of Scripture. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 1. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And if you'll allow me to paraphrase what Paul is saying here, before the creation of the world, God chose us to be his children, to be holy and faultless in his eyes. And through Jesus, he adopts us as his children and makes us true to him, which brings him great delight. It brings him pleasure. It brings him joy to do all of this. And we see this theme running through the book of Isaiah. For all of Israel's history, Israel has been running from God. Like almost always, you see Israel immediately turning from God, worshiping idols, doing all sorts of horrible things. And then God sends some other nation to oppress Israel. And Israel's like, help us, God. We made a mistake. And God rescues Israel. And then Israel goes right back to it. They go back to rebelling against God's love. And so Israel and God's people fail to be true to God. Uh, John Oswald, an Old Testament professor, puts some words in Isaiah's mouth to say it like this. Oh no, it's not surprising that God should have gotten angry with us. What is surprising is that he ever cared about us at all, and that he then continued to love us and care for us when we senselessly rejected him. You see, we, we reject God too. It's not just an Israel thing. We are God's people, and we run away from him as well. But God, in his love and his mercy, chooses to adopt us. We sing a song often in second service called Reckless Love, and it's about how God's love is so reckless that he's like the shepherd looking for his sheep, and he leaves the 99 behind to go after the one that is strayed. There is no limit to the lengths that God will go to save his children. So verse 9 in Isaiah 63 says this, in their distress, he too was distressed. When we, in our sorrow and our misery and our rebellion from God, God sees that and he comes to our rescue. He is distressed when we are distressed. And now we look to Hebrews 2, which Ali read for us earlier, 
to see what God in distress for us looks like. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since the children, since God's children, have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity. That's what the Christmas season is all about. It's about Jesus coming to earth, becoming human, sharing in our distress. Since we are God's children, we are humans, God himself became a human to rescue us. Jesus shares in our full humanity. He is our brother. Hebrews 2.11 says this, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. God does all of this so that his children can be true. The one who makes the children true and the children are all human. Jesus became a human and is of the same flesh and blood of us so that he could make us true who are unfaithful to him, who run away from God. God wants children who are true, so he sent the truest person he could to make that happen. Jesus, our brother, became truly human to make us true humans as we were supposed to be before the Garden of Eden. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. Hebrews continues along that line and says that Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every single way, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus understands what it is like to be human because he has been fully human. He is fully human. He was tempted in the desert by Satan. And he suffered. And not just suffering on the cross. There was suffering beyond that. He suffered as all humans do. He got sick. He was betrayed by a friend, by Judas. Some scholars even speculate that Joseph died early in Jesus' life because he's not mentioned beyond the first couple of years of Jesus' life in the Gospels. If so, if that's true, then Jesus suffered the loss of a father very early in life. And he grieved just like we do. Jesus became like us in every single way so that God could adopt us as his children. And this is spelled out for us in Hebrews 2.17. He became human to be our high priest and to atone for our sins. So a priest, a priest is someone who intercedes on our behalf before God. So Jesus, as fully God and fully man, is perfectly positioned to intercede on our behalf before God. And because he is fully human, because he has lived the life that we live, he is merciful because he knows what it is like to be frail and to be needy. He knows that and he sympathizes with us. Beyond that, he became a human to make atonement for the sins of his people. Atonement is a fun word that we have spent a lot of time talking about with our middle school students on Wednesday nights. So if you break it down, atonement is at-one-ment. It means making at one, making one, bringing two things that were separate back together into one. So the very worst thing that sin ever does is that it separates us from God. 
That's why Adam and Eve had to be banished from the garden. They had, to, they had to go away from God's presence because of sin. Our sin deserves death. The wages of sin are death, as Romans says. But Christ's death in our place brings us close to God. We can be at one with God again. That's what it means when Jesus makes atonement for our sins. Furthermore, by his death, Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Jesus' death is the very beginning, the first act of a new world, a world where the sting of death and sorrow are no more. And his death frees those who are in slavery to the fear of death. We no longer have to be afraid of death, and we can live as free children in God's house forever. Jesus' death is the first act of the second exodus, the second return from slavery, the second return from captivity and exile. This is good news indeed, this freedom that Jesus brings. All who accept Christ's death on their behalf are adopted into God's family. Isaiah 63.7, it begins and ends with the Hebrew word hesed, which is a fantastic word, and we don't really have a one-for-one -one equivalent in English. But the general gist of hesed is this. It means the love, the goodness, and the kindness of God towards his people. Sometimes in your Bible you might see it translated as steadfast love or loving kindness to try to, to get across that meaning from the Hebrew into our English. It's about God's kindness and compassion for us. So Isaiah 63.7 says, I will tell of all the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all that the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many things that he has done for Israel according to his compassion and kindness. It begins and ends with God's love and kindness for us. That verse begins and ends with it. In the midst of his love and kindness, we get to tell of all that God has done for us. When our lives are given over to the love and kindness of God, we cannot help but declare all the things that he has done for us. Christians aren't better people than everyone else. We are simply forgiven and loved people. The power of forgiveness and love in Jesus transforms us to be true children of God. God calls us to be loyal to him. This means worshiping him and him alone, not some idol like money or power. If we are true to God, that means we are loyal to him. That means we don't go and root for the other team because our team is not the team that we want or the team that's performing the way we want. We are a family together, and we are to be true to God and to one another. True children live out the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do to you. This is an often neglected command, I feel like, in the church. We deal with others based on expediency and convenience. The church should be the place where people are loved and not cast aside. In a few minutes, we are going to confess our sins before God and before one another that we have failed to be an obedient church. Or in other words, we have failed to be a true church, a loyal church to God and to God's people. So what are the ways that we have failed to be true to God and true to others? 
in what ways have we as individuals and as a, like a whole body, have we failed to treat others as we would have wanted to be treated? In what ways have we set, cast aside someone for convenience rather than loving our neighbor as ourselves? When have we ignored where the Spirit was leading for the sake of our own comfort? True children can make mistakes. We can. We're only human after all. But we must confess those mistakes before God and before one another. The church is not about comfort. It is about family. And sometimes family can be uncomfortable. We just went through this holiday season where you probably had family in your house or you went to see family. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. Haley's parents joke around about this 36-hour rule where we're allowed to be together for 36 hours and then we have to go our separate ways before things get too crazy. Some of you are probably thinking, I should have had a 36-hour rule this Christmas. But family can be uncomfortable. It can be messy. When you are a family, you are required to love, regardless of if the other person deserves it. And this is a very uncomfortable thing, but it is what God calls us to do. When the true church is living as the true church, as a loyal church to God and to others, I think it, it really lives out Acts 9.31, which is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. So the church had peace, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So in this, in this verse, I think it very clearly lays out that a true church is one that is multiplying. Remember the command that God gave to Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful and multiply. A true church should be a church that gives birth to other churches. So at one point in history, Methodists were the most prolific church starters ever, right? There used to be a Methodist church in every single county in the United States. And that all happened like that. Just people would go out and bring the good news of God to the world. Right now in our country, about 10 churches close their doors every single day. It's like 3,700 churches a year that close their doors in America. And the population here keeps rising. It just keeps going up. So we are at this point where we have a deficiency in the amount of churches in America. We need more. We need the church to have peace and to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and give birth to other churches. But again, that only happens when there is peace, when there is comfort, and when there is fear. If we have no peace, if we are at war with ourselves, if we are fighting about things that really don't matter in the kingdom of God, we will not multiply. If we fail to have an adequate fear of the Lord, we will not multiply. If we seek our own comfort rather than the comfort that the Holy Spirit brings, we will not multiply. And I believe that the church in America is too comfortable and not from the comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit. We sit in the same pews week after week after year after year, and we are quite comfortable with who is in our circle of friends, but we don't seek to extend that group. 
We're comfortable inviting the needy to our churches to get food and clothes, but we don't invite them to truly become part of the family. Brothers and sisters, it is time to get uncomfortable so that we may be comforted by the Holy Spirit rather than our own routines. So in a moment, Pastor Ryan is going to invite us to the table and he's going to invite us to confess our sins before God and before one another. So let us think and ponder about how we have failed to be an obedient church, rebelling against God's love. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. God's kindness is the beginning and the end of the story. There is grace and there is mercy available at the cross for all who desire to be true, all who desire to be loyal to God and to one another, and who earnestly confess their sins. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.